welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hey church, well if you're new to The Well or you just forgot what happened last week, we are in a series about love. And our premise that we started with a couple weeks ago that we're revisiting each week is, love is greater than everything. That's that greater than symbol. I don't have it with me here, but uh, love is greater than everything because if you don't have love, everything else is nothing. Now, even if you've never heard that from the Bible before, you never read the Bible before, you know that to be true, that many ways, in many ways, in the end of our lives, what we would want to be said about us, what people seem to value most is not the stuff they accomplished or how much money they made or what they looked like or who thought they were important or how famous they were or even how much great faith they had or what kind of moral, um, you know, a, a good person, they, a reputation they had but were they a loving person and are they surrounded by loving relationships? And we said, okay, that's the goal because love is greater than everything. But it brings up the question every week, what is love? What is love? Well, we are taking eight weeks, as I said, to do that. And we're looking at a 2000 year old piece of writing in the, in the library that is scripture that is one of the most robust, um, real, practical, gritty, uh, down-to-earth, not oversimplified explanations of what love is. And that's good because we need to understand more than just feelings and warm fuzzies, more than just an idea or ideals, what is love and how does it intersect our lives on an everyday basis? And if we're talking about love, where we come to today is the fact that we have to talk about words if we're talking about love. Um, you know, because we, we, we throw around the words, I love you. We say, I love pizza, you know, or I love that dress. We say things that don't even make sense, like I love cats or I love country music, right? Doesn't even make sense. Um, you know, to be honest though, for some of us, it may be easy to say the words, I love you. But then some of the other words we say seem to betray those words. Or maybe many of us find it difficult even to say those three words, I love you. We, we, they were never said to us or we just feel awkward every time we say them. And so we actually have to understand that the words that are associated with love. And the scriptures actually explain to us, in one verse that uh, even if you've never read it before, you go, yeah, that's true, says this, the tongue has the power of life and death. The tongue has the power of life and death. Like in our words is contained the power to give life and to take it away. Adolf Hitler literally took away the lives of six million Jews with a warped ideology and a microphone. Think about that. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Martin Luther King Day. Martin Luther King was someone who, with his words, gave life. He brought life and light to the issue and the struggles of racism and helped liberate people, primarily through, obviously, his actions, but his words, his famous speech, I Have a Dream, and many other things that he said to mobilize people. Those words had the power of life. And even the social media airwaves today are filled with words, Um, words that have the power to give life, to encourage, to bring joy, to bring delight, um, to express love, and words that have the power to rob life, to criticize, to tear down, and to bring death. We know that even words have a power, like even, even acts of violence often are preceded by words of violence. Physical altercations are often preceded by verbal altercations. And so if we're going to talk about love, we got to talk about um, words. 
And uh, interestingly, the writers of the Bible um, don't ignore this fact, how important words are. But it isn't just sort of scripture or seeing it in culture, you know, words have the power of life and death in your own life. Like the words of other people uh, have brought life and death to you. We had that old saying when I grew up in the playground, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. We know that's not true because even you may have broken a bone, a finger or a, an ankle or a, an arm or something when you were younger. Chances are you've healed from that. But there's words that you remember from when you were younger that you've never healed from. Words that were spoken to you by friends, by bullies, by a sibling, by a parent, by a pastor, by a boss, by a teacher. Things that have remained with us and have done damage to our soul. We know that. Words can do damage. They have done damage to us. And if we're honest, our words have done damage to others. There are things that you've said you don't even remember saying, but others still remember it. There are words that you said in the heat of the moment, or you weren't intending to do damage, but they did. Or some words that we spoke that we were intending to do damage, and they did. And so we know words have the power of life and death. The passage we're looking at today actually comes to this point to talk about, in a sense, our words. And we're going to look at, I want you to listen actually to two readings, one from the Apostle Paul in this letter to Corinthians that is this robust and real description of love, and another set of words from a letter from the Apostle James. And both of them put their finger on one issue in particular when it comes to our words. And so I want you to listen. Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Did you catch that word that appeared in both passages? A word that has to do with love. It is the word anger. Angry words are at issue here. Words that were spoken to us in anger, with rage, with frustration by other people. Words that we have spoken towards others in anger, in frustration, in rage. And maybe we can broaden it even words that perhaps we didn't speak out loud, but we had angry thoughts and angry words on the inside, anger fantasies, things we would have said or would have liked to say, even though we know it might not be um, uh, okay to express them out loud. They're words that we have on the inside. The issue of angry words is what is at stake here. And the writers bring our attention to them. And it's interesting Paul, when he's describing love, he doesn't say, don't ever get angry. Look at what he says. He says, love is not easily angered. Love is not easily angered, which I think said another way is, anger is an easy emotion. Anger is an easy emotion. It is something we come by naturally. I want you to watch even this scientific explanation of what's happening in the brain, even from a young age, in terms of how anger works and how it is expressed. Have a look. That's anger. He cares very deeply about things being fair. So that's how you want to play it, old man? No dessert? Oh, sure. We'll eat our dinner right after you eat this. Ah! 
right. right. Here comes an airplane. Oh, airplane. We got an airplane, everybody. These are my kind of people. All right, just a few more blocks. We're almost to our new house. Step on it, Daddy. We're supposed to live here? We have I'm telling to. you, it smells like something died in here. Can you die from moving? Guys, you're overreacting. Nobody is dying. A dead mouse! Ah, great. I'm going to be sick. House of the dead. What are we going to do? We're going to get rabies. Get off my man. Hey, hey, hey. All through the drive, Dad talked about how cool our new room is. Hey, I saw a pizza place down the street. Maybe we could try that. Pizza sounds delicious. Pizza? pizza. Yes, pizza. Right That's good. What the heck is Who that? Who puts broccoli on pizza? That's it. I'm done. Congratulations, San Francisco. You've ruined pizza. First the Hawaiians, and now you. <laughs> oh, man, I love that movie. Uh, so good, right? And so true. The truth is, I don't remember learning to be angry. I think I just picked it out myself. It was one of those great skills, right? Like, that's just something we learn from a very young age. Now, psychologists will tell you, doctors will tell you, anger is a natural emotion. It's a naturally occurring emotion. It often occurs in times of crisis or fear or anxiety or uh, when a decision or something needs to be made. Some of you have heard the whole idea of fight and flight. It can be linked to that and can be produced, um, you know, just... Uh, automatically and is necessarily unhelpful for a period of time. But doctors also point out, one doctor of psychology pointed out that when anger comes up in us and builds up in us and we have an outburst of anger, an outburst of rage, an outburst of words, it can provide a temporary relief to those feelings of anger that come up in us. The problem is that our body and our mind can get used to dealing with our anger like that. And even chemically, physiologically, but also psychologically, that's what we get used to doing. That is how we deal with all feelings of stress or concern or fear or anger is angry outbursts, angry words, explosions. And they said actually chemically, physically, mentally, that can become an addiction, a way of life. And that's when it gets really dangerous, when it becomes easy to be angry. Another doctor of psychotherapy in the same article I was reading noted that um, social media has potentially made it um, easier for us to get angry more often. And the reason they said that is in social media, we are constantly presented with people we know and people we don't know who are criticizing or tearing down or attacking our values, our ideas, and our identity. Right? Think about that, that there's lots of things about us, either people personally we know or people we don't even know personally, whose ideas and values and the way they present themselves and the way they communicate are actually an attack on our ideas, our values, and so it is very easy to get angry because we are exposed to angry words. <laughs> and even more so, we can be honest, we are also exposed to people who share our ideas and our values and are expressing them in angry tones. And that same doctor of psychotherapy noted that destructive um, methods of expressing our anger are more easily expressed in groups. Like in groups, we're more likely to express our anger in a destructive way. And I think that would even apply to you know, groups in social media, groups that we are virtually a part of. And so, so social media has actually presented this environment in this world that in a sense makes anger more present and more easy for us to uh, engage in. And so we are in a very real sense in danger of regularly using or expressing anger as our go-to uh, way of dealing with stuff, as our go-to tool, angry words can become our native tongue. 
And as I said, not even just the things we say, but the things we think. Anger on the outside, anger expressed that way, anger on the inside. It can be an easy emotion. The other reason anger can be easy is because, in a sense, anger is safer. <laughs> and I put that brackets in safer. It's not, it's not um, safer for the people around us, but it is safer for us. And here's what I mean. That other feelings, worry, fear, hurt, grief, loss, shame, tears, can be harder to express because they're more vulnerable emotions. They require us, and they actually have a certain level of vulnerability, which we associate with weakness, and therefore we are scared to do that. And so anger is a safer emotion because it's more powerful, it's stronger, it's aggressive, it's assertive, it's protection. And so anger can be easier because it's safer for us to express that than many other things. And I think if we're honest, many guys, many men were raised in homes where we said, men don't express sadness, men don't grieve, men don't shed tears, men don't um, get depressed, men don't have anxiety, men don't, aren't afraid. And so many men were raised in homes, young boys were raised from the very beginning. It's like anger is the safer one. We can, anger is like, okay, don't worry, I'll take that one. <laughs> I can express all those things in just one fell swoop. And so for many men, we're, but also even for many women, as the equality movement, as we are recognizing the equality of men and women, and we, that we don't necessarily need to follow stereotypes of men and women, women can sometimes feel like, and I've had women say this, oh yeah, like we can't show emotion because people think, oh, women always show emotion. So you can't, um, you know, show sadness or tears in the workplace or wherever. Um, and so in men and women can also be told, oh, that's not safe. Some of those other more weaker emotions. And so anger can be one that's stronger, that's more assertive, that covers up. And so anger is not just easy because it's all around us and can become an addictive way of dealing with our lives. Anger can become easy because it's, it's a safer emotion for us to express. And so, friends, we have to be honest that for many of us, in, in seasons or over long periods of time, anger has become the go-to tool in our toolbox, that angry words have become our native tongue. And James, in his passage that we read, actually explains why this is not a good way of life. I mean, intuitively, maybe we know that. But he actually explains in a very insightful way why this is not helpful to adopt that as to be easily angered. And he says it this way. He says, human anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. Human anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. And that phrase, the righteousness that God desires, is a really important one. He says, when we get angry, he said, it doesn't bring about the righteousness that God desires. And commentators understand the meaning of that from the original Greek as, as having two potentially different meanings, both of which are actually really helpful. Then on the one hand, it means kind of what, how this translation is. It doesn't bring about the life that God desires. And it's a way of saying, when you get easily angered, when anger is your go-to, not just sort of the instinctive, natural emotion that might come up in a situation of threat or injustice or whatever, but when it becomes a go-to, when it becomes almost an addictive pattern for you mentally and physically, when it becomes easy because it covers up some of the other things and it's your native tongue, James says, it doesn't bring about the life that you want and the life that God wants for you, right? It's actually, if I can say this, it's a doorway to other unhelpful and destructive patterns in your life. Like anger doesn't actually, it's, it's like the old Dr. Phil question, how's that working for you, right? If anger is a regular part of your life, we have to ask ourselves, no, it actually destroys the life that we want to have. And it's not the way, it, it sabotages many other things, not the least of which is love. 
it gets in the way of having the life that we want it. And many of you know that, of people in your life who have been really angry. It destroys many things in their lives. And so James is saying, look, it doesn't work for us. Yes, it's natural to come up. But is it even in a situation where you would say, oh, I've been wronged, where anger is justifiable, where someone has wronged me or someone has wronged someone I love or, you know, um, wronged something I care about or that's something that shouldn't be, anger can naturally surface in us. But if we ride that out, if we stay angry, if we respond in anger, it actually begins to destroy and get in the way of the very things we want to save or help or heal or see restored. And so James says, on the one hand, it doesn't bring about the life for you that you wanted. But another way to read that translation, which is actually equally helpful, either way you read it, and maybe it means both, is human anger does not bring about the justice of God, like God's righteousness, justice. And this is really important because anger is an important and valuable emotion when it comes to injustice, Right? Like when we experience injustice, there's a natural sense of anger that that isn't right that comes up in us. When loved ones of ours are unjustly treated, are, are wronged, are, uh, are victims of injustice, we naturally, and, and, and there's a good thing in us that comes up and says this isn't right. Or when we see other people, maybe aren't loved ones, but people who are being unjustly treated or systems that are um, systemically unjust and oppressive, there's an anger that comes out of the, and, and that's right. And what we want is justice. And the justice we want is basically the justice of God. Like whatever little formed sense of justice we have, well, how much more beautiful and fully formed is God's sense of justice? He made us. So we're wanting the justice of God. We're wanting right to be done. But again, he says, it's possible for that anger to come up if we stay angry, if we respond in anger, it actually gets in the way of the justice we want to see. And friends, we can see this all throughout our lives and all throughout history and a biblical history, modern history, that hate and injustice often brings about hate in response, right? Like even um, many of the demonstrations against racial injustice that we saw over the past several months that were fueled by, I would say, I mean, I don't know all the people, but certainly for me and people I know that went, were fueled by a righteous anger that this is, no, this isn't right. We need to stand up. And yet how easily some people, not everybody, but some people can turn that into violence and hate and to become the very thing that they are against, right? Because James says, be careful with your anger. You have to be careful how you use it. It can very easily turn into destruction. And in, this, in the end, it blocks the justice of God from coming. Our anger gets in the way of God's justice. And what does it do? It gives other people who maybe are, are perpetuating the injustice the chance to write off those who are demonstrating and say, see, they're just doing the same thing. It actually gets in the way of the justice of God when our anger is left unchecked and when it rides out and that becomes our response or the place we stay and live in, in that place of anger. I remember reading um, Nelson de Mandela's biography. I think I told you about that. It took me forever to read it. It was so thick. But one of the things he said, he spent over 30 years in prison, unjustly accused and unjustly treated throughout those years as someone who was trying to release his entire country from racial injustice. And he said one of the things he knew he had to attend to during his time in prison was that he did not stay angry. There was a righteous anger that motivated a lot. But he said, if I stayed angry, he said, I would become the very thing I hated. And in the end, by the time he came out of prison, because he had tended to that in his heart and ang he had not stayed angry or wrote it out or responded in anger, he was actually in a position to bring the justice of God and what his country really needed. And so that's what James says. 
is be careful with anger. You have to use it very carefully and sparingly, not a lot. It can't be your go-to. It can't be your native tongue because very rarely will it bring about the things you want to be and the things you want to see happen. Therefore, he says, be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry. Quick to listen. He said, instead of being quick to be angry, there's something else. Be quick to listen. In other words, shut up. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what he's saying, right? We even talked about last week how uh, a lot of, um, this is a couple weeks ago, but asking questions is an important part of listening. So it doesn't mean be silent. It doesn't mean stuff it down because many of us maybe never express our anger except it's seething away on the inside. And somebody's saying, when he says, be quick to listen, he said, be quick to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Isn't it true that often we get angry and we respond quickly? And the, more, and the more quickly we respond in anger, the less likely we are to be responding to an accurate set of facts and circumstances because we haven't stopped long enough to ask questions, to think, to be slow, to slow down. Oftentimes what can diffuse our anger is when we start to understand where the other person is coming from. And so it isn't just about being silent, it's about actively listening and understanding the other person, the other person's ideas, the other person's feelings, the other person's responses, even if they were responding in anger to us. James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Now, that's a good thing. But let's be honest. For any of us who would say, oh, you know, anger's become an addictive pattern. Like, it's my go-to. I'm so used to it. My body's so used to releasing stress by exploding. My words are so used, they just come flying out before. It's, the, it's, the na- it's my native tongue. And, and I'll be honest, if, if you don't know whether it is, ask the people close to you. They'll tell you, you know, is anger my native tongue? Am I, am I quick to anger? They'll tell you. And if you are, if we are, if we're in that place of addiction, just saying, oh, I should be slow to speak, Uh, Just willpower alone will not get you there. If you are in that place where you recognize that this is something that has a hold in your life that is your native tongue, you need to realize there is something underneath your anger. It's easy for you because, but it is a surface or a secondary emotion. It's the rock, if you will, that you can see. What you need to is to see what's underneath your anger. And by that, I mean in two particular areas that usually underneath anger, underneath expressed anger and regularly used anger and explosions and whether they expressed outside or seething on the inside is unexpressed emotions, like other emotions, and an unexplored past. Unexpressed emotions and an unexplored past. My point is that there may be many other emotions that you feel in your life. Of, of sadness, of anxiety, of fear, of despair, of shame, of tears, of grief, of loss. But if you don't know that they're there or you don't know how to express them, you don't have a language for that, anger will be your go-to. But it's probably masking something underneath. Other emotions that need to be explored. I have a friend of mine who used to work with um, uh, teenage kids in, in, in the guidance department in a high school. And one of the things she said is, psychologically, what we know is when we're young, we only know three kinds of emotions, mad, sad, glad, mad, sad, glad, very simplified set of emotions. But as we get get older, in fact, the job of parents is to teach children a wider set of emotions, a more nuanced understanding of, well, you feel mad, but that could be embarrassment, that could be shame, that could be fear, that could be anxiety, that could be sadness, and to actually have those things. And if we weren't taught those things, we as adults can just continue on with a very oversimplified set of emotions mad, sad, 
glad. We need to actually realize, wait, there's a whole other emotional life under the surface that if I'm regularly mad, either outwardly or inwardly, I actually need to understand and explore those emotions underneath. The second thing is an unexamined past. We need to understand that our relationships with people in our past, our family, the things that have happened to us in our family of origin as we've grown up, traumatic experiences, whatever they were, those are not just things we went through, they're things that shaped us. And we can have, un, if we have unresolved issues in those things, we realize we're a product of our past, that that can be expressing in anger. Now you might say, well, that's because my dad was angry and so I am angry. It's like, okay, well, that's good to know, but that's not enough. Do you know why he was angry? Do you remember why, where those things happened? What your responses were to his anger? Why did you respond that way? And how has that carried into the way you see the world and where your anger comes from? Have you understood how those experiences that you had that at the time you just stuffed down or, you know, um, even if you were on, on the other end of the spectrum where you were in a family where you never saw any of those, you never saw anger, you never saw sadness, you never saw fear, you never saw anxiety, you never saw worry, you never saw anybody fight, you know, so you just assumed, well, that's how the world is. And so any emotions you had like that, you just shoved down. That is an unexplored past that is now manifesting itself in anger as your native tongue. And so if you're going to get to the bottom of it, you've got to understand it. Now, in my own life, uh, this kind of showed up in two ways. When we uh, had, our kids were young. Our first two were um, two under two we had at the time. And I was noticing that as I was responding in anger at sometimes, a frustration either to Jen or as they got a little bit older and they, when they were, you know, a little more older than the toddlers, when they're angry, I was responding in anger. And I could blame it on the fact that, oh, we had two under two or we weren't sleeping well. One of our kids didn't sleep through the night for 18 months and we don't have to name names because they already know who they are. Uh, or I was in a stressful job and I was traveling a lot and all of those kinds of things. But ultimately, I started to realize a couple of things. One is that I, growing up, was somebody who had termed a whole bunch of those emotions, anger, sadness, fear, worry, anxiety, loss, hurt, as negative emotions. And I didn't want anything to do with them. I was kind of a happy-go-lucky, fun-seeking person. That was how I liked to live life. I didn't really acknowledge that I even had any of those things. And I didn't like being around people who expressed those things. They were negative emotions to me. And so I had no idea about the complexity of my inner emotional life because I just never talked about it. I never thought it was there. I just thought I was fine. And all of a sudden, these things are coming out. I'm realizing, wait, there's stuff going on inside of me. And so I started to re really realize, I need to know what's going on underneath the surface. Because why am I responding to mad, sad, glad with mad, sad, glad? Like, I need to have a more complex emotional life. Secondly, one of the things I realized in my family background, I grew up with a dad who was never angry, who was so rational, calm, and always spoke in measured tone, which is wonderful on so many levels. But we always talked things through. But I was an emotional person. I was not a rational person. Um, and so I didn't know how to deal with the emotions that I have, and they weren't always in play. And, and so I was like, okay, now, and so, so I'm realizing I, don't, I, I wasn't taught this, and I don't have it naturally in me. I needed to begin to sort it out. and needed to begin to grow and realize, oh, I can begin, what's happened over time is I'm able to spot now, even when I'm driving home from something where if I had an interaction with someone that made me sad, I'm able to recognize, oh, that's the emotion of sadness. Oh, I'm feeling a bit anxious about what's, oh, I'm feeling a bit fearful, whatever. Instead of coming out as anger, I'm able to, and I'm able to recognize in my kids when they might be angry about something, saying there's probably something below the surface. How can I ask them questions? How can I be quick to listen to them and slow to speak for them so they can process their own emotions? something that we learn to do over time. 
And so for you, wherever you are in the spectrum, whether you're someone who's saying, yeah, this has become like a full-blown addiction, it's my native tongue, or I just have fits and starts of it, or I'm in a season where I'm in, I don't like it, um, what could I do? Well, two tools that were really helpful for me in that process. One was a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Gazzaro, and we've recommended that a few times. And that just kind of is based on the premise that we can't say we're spiritually mature, that we have a life that we want or God wants without a life of love. And that love, part of that is understanding that underneath the inner life, both of our past and our family and our family of origin, all the stuff's happening in our lives, and our emotional life. And so that's a book that's got lots of practical um, tools to try to understand this. So you can begin there. And the other one is one of the a small tool that actually is recommended in that book. And that is the practice, the daily practice of silence. Oh, James says, you know, be quick to listen, slow to speak. But this is silence, not even just with other people, silence on your own. If we can't even be learned to be silent in our mind, in our heart, we have no hope of being that when we're being provoked or when we're in a difficult conversation or stressful interaction with someone else. And so I would recommend to start with five minutes a day of silence. And all that does is create space for you to be in the presence of God and to become more aware of what's under the surface without the interruption of a podcast or sports radio or TV or whatever's going on or conversations with other people to begin your day with, and I would say start with five minutes, try to work up to 30 minutes of silence and all you're doing in that place, you're not listening to music or anything like that, you are just trying to, what will happen first, the more silent you are, the more you become aware of how noisy your thoughts are. And so that's a beginning place to say, how do I create space to be silent, to let what is underneath come to the surface, to become more aware of myself and therefore be able to be more nuanced in understanding of how I express myself and how I listen to and I'm quick to listen and slow to speak with others. Kind of before we move on and wrap up the service, we actually want to do that and just take, I'm not even going to make you do five minutes because five minutes can be long. We've never done it. We're going to do three minutes of silence together. And so we're just going to take three minutes. We're going to be quiet. And um, we're going to put a couple of questions on the screen. If you get, if you've, you might find your thoughts are noisy and that's okay. There's no way to ace this, but just to be silent. If you're in a room with other people, just respect each other enough to just be silent for three minutes. And if you're on your own, obviously you can do that as well. And if you find your thoughts wandering or are you getting noisy, just pray these things. God, thank you for your love. Just in your head, thank you for your love. Help me understand myself. Thank you for your love. Help me understand myself. And we're just going to take three minutes and be silent now.
I hope that that's the beginning of something that you can begin to just incorporate into your life on a daily basis, just to let God, you know, as one of the prayers in the Bible says, search you and know you and bring to the surface those things that you need to see. I do want to say if some of you, um, you know, need to do a more robust look under the surface into your past, counseling is something that many of us on staff have used from time to time in our own lives and other people in our church. We have counselors we're connected to that we're happy to recommend for you. And we even have funding for those of you that say, I'd I'd love to, I just don't, I don't have a plan that could cover that. I don't have the finances. We never want finances to stand in the way of that. And so if counseling is something you feel like a step with that, of course, you could begin by just contacting one of us on staff as pastors to begin that conversation to help you with that. One of the things that I find most encouraging to me in this whole journey of understanding myself more and learning to love and becoming, moving away from anger being something that is a native tongue for me is that God himself, when he introduced himself in the early pages of scripture, a few times, this is how God introduced himself. Listen to this. I, the Lord, am compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Can I just say this to you? God's native tongue is not anger. Maybe you thought that from some of the things you read in scripture or some of the the church you grew up in or the parents that how they represented God to you. But God describes himself in his very essence as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, which means even when we are expressing our anger, our frustration, our angst, and we are a mess and not loving, God does not respond to us in anger. And so he is the one, the scriptures say he is our father. He is the one from whom we can learn how to be compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. We're going to close today's service with a song called No Longer Slaves. And I want you to sing it for some of you maybe feel like, yeah, I've been a slave to anger. Um, even though it doesn't use that word in the song, you might say, yeah, that's what I need, God. Can you free me? Can you teach me how to love? And it says, because I am a child of God. I am a child of the one who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And you can say, okay, Lord, I'm not a slave to these things anymore. I can be free and I can learn to love from God.